Hebrews in chapter 10 and beginning in verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us, your life-giving word. And by it, let us each be changed, that Christ may receive glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we engage with this passage before us, you and I might be tempted to think, haven't we been here before? Hasn't this been said before? This sounds repetitive. Isn't it just a little redundant? We got it already. Okay, we got this. I want to ask you, really, did you? Did you truly get this already? Many scholars take the view that the epistle to the Hebrews is a written sermon of sort. Like any sermon, there are things that are stressed and repeated. Repeatedly stressed, you may say. If the sermon had a title, perhaps the title could be this, Jesus is better. That's the theme. And that's the point of the book. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is better. Just as an aside, if it is in fact a sermon, it's interesting to me that when we read Hebrews chapter 13, we're in chapter 10, go to chapter 13 just for a moment, and we read these words in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Depending on what speed you read out loud, it takes between 45 and 50 minutes to read through the book of Hebrews. So this Hebrew sermon was between 45 and 50 minutes, about the average length of one of my sermons. So, on biblical grounds, I'm telling you my sermons are brief. <laughs> what you do with that is as you will. But there's no doubt that the writer makes the point in this sermon and it's Jesus is better and he's striking that message home. He makes that point more than once. That's typical of a good sermon. And now I believe there's a couple of things we need to understand about this. Firstly, we might think this is redundant. We might think this is unnecessary. We've heard it. 
But church history is full, and I mean full, regarding the record of those who failed to grasp this foundational truth, this vital foundational truth. A failure to understand the perfect and finished work of Christ and instead proclaim a works-based salvation. Though the writer of Hebrews has pounded this truth and repeated it, man-made tradition obscures the cross of Christ despite the fact that a cross in church history could be seen in just about every church building. They see the cross, but they don't see it. The second thing I would say is this. By default, all of us have a tendency towards a works-based salvation. Oh yeah, I get in by grace, but I've got to now keep this thing up, otherwise I'm out of here. That's not justification, folks. That's probation. You're out of the prison cell, but we're watching you. And I would say this, that's our default position. We often think, I'm in good standing with God because I fill in the blank. And in different sectors of the church, the end of that sentence is different, but it amounts to the same thing, a works-based message. God is pleased with me because of my prayer time, because I've witnessed my faith, because I've done this, I've visited the poor, I've done this, I've done this, rather than Jesus has done something for me. The message of Christianity is not do, 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 but done, done, done. He did it, and we stand in the finished work of Christ. But you'll be amazed as you read and study church history how many people didn't get it. And yet Hebrews, we think, is a little bit redundant in saying certain things over and over. So it's not just a problem that's out there. It's a problem in here. It's happening between our ears. We have a workspace, merit-based way of salvation in our thinking. That's why we need to be constantly exposed to the gospel. Never, ever, ever get over the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the gospel is not just for the world. The gospel is for Christians too. Amen. Amen. The gospel should always be preached. The gospel should never be assumed. And the message is this. Are you ready? One sacrifice did it all forever. That's it. The devil's strategy is to seek to undermine our confidence in this. And as we read the passage before us in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll note the continued emphasis of contrast. The contrast between the endless, repeated sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood and the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Let's read Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The contrast is very easy to understand for the recipients of this letter, Jewish Christians, at least those who were professing faith in Christ, the Levitical priests had no place to sit. In all the items of furniture, in the tabernacle or the temple, there was no chair for the priests. 
They continued to stand and they continued to offer because their work was never finished. In contrast, hear this, Jesus sits. Ladies and gentlemen, hear that. Jesus sits. His work is complete. His work is finished. But there's more. Jesus sits enthroned. He sat down where? At the right hand of God. At the place of all authority. That's the message of the gospel. That though we had been lawbreakers, though we had shaken and shook our, our, our fist in the hand of God, in the face of God, though we were defiant rebels, having committed cosmic treason against the Most High God, God in His love for this world, though He had no need to, other than to satisfy His own love, He sent His Son into the world to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life and die an atoning death for sinners on the cross and rise again from the dead the third day, having satisfied all the demands of holy justice and alive. He's at the right hand of the place of all authority in this universe. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And anyone who turns from self and repents and believes in this Lord Jesus is saved from the anger and the wrath of God that was due to us and is due to us because of our sin. Jesus redeems rebel sinners. I qualify only as a rebel sinner. But because I've called on the name of the Lord, He has the power to save and He saves all who call upon Him. Praise the Lord. Verse 13 tells us what He's doing as He sits enthroned. Do you realize that? You can't see it, which is the message of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 gives us the faith chapter. We can't see this with our earthly eyes, but the Holy Spirit gives us the sight to see Jesus is enthroned, sitting right now, waiting for something. What's he doing? Waiting, verse 13, waiting from that time. What is the time in view? It's the time of his enthronement. Do you realize Jesus isn't coming back to rule? He rules now. He's the king of the nations now. Well, if it was true, wouldn't the world be in better shape? No, uh, not necessarily. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be in great shape. But he's reigning now. He's not coming back to be crowned king. He is crowned king. He is the king. The ceremony has already taken place. And he sits on the throne with his father. And he's waiting from that time. What time? The time of his enthronement. What's he waiting for? Look at this. Until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a quotation from Psalm 110. Let's keep our place in Hebrews and go there. Psalm 110, written around a thousand years before the time of Christ. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens these words. Psalm 110, this is the most quoted scripture of the Old Testament in the New. So it's important. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. Verse 1, the Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord. You realize two persons are described as Lord. 
The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Lord. Whose Lord? David's Lord. Now, David was king, but he had a Lord. And the Lord said to his Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So, this king is reigning and he's also a priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, who's the you? The Lord, the king, who rules. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a point that has been well established here in the book of Hebrews. We don't need to rehearse it or recount it, but Jesus is both king and priest. He's prophet, priest, and king. In the old covenant, you couldn't be a king and a priest under the Levitical priesthood, but Jesus is not of the Levitical priesthood. He's of a higher priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's a priest and a king. And so verse 4 tells us that you, the Lord, the Lord has sworn that you the Lord, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It's amazing. It's totally amazing. But Jesus is the king priest, a theme we've already encountered in Hebrews. Now, we read these words, waiting from that time, we're back in Hebrews 10, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is an analogy from the ancient world that would be known to all the recipients of the letter. After a battle, a victorious king celebrates the victory. And rather than showing photographs of the enemy and uh, video, YouTube videos of the enemy and the battle, couldn't do that back then, what they did was they would have a stage, a public arena, a stage, and they would have the king on his throne, and then the defeated king would be brought up to the stage, made to sit on that stage with the victorious king putting, putting his feet on the neck of the defeated king. See that picture? In other words, the defeated king becomes a footstool for the, for the king who has won. It's obvious who won, it's obvious who's lost, and seeing the humiliation of the defeated king, all of the people erupt in celebration. Wow, what a king we have. He's defeated our enemy. Look at the enemy defeated. He even has his foot on his neck, using him as a footstool. Now, our little tender hearts think, oh, the poor defeated king. But realize the poor defeated king would have done the exact same thing and wiped everybody else out. That's just a point. But having that image tells us something of what Jesus is doing. He is waiting from the time of his enthronement until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That's what he's doing. It may not look like it, but it's the case. He's doing it now. He's waiting from that time till his second coming, from that time, the time of his enthronement, until something happens. All his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's a sign of total victory for the king, an outright defeat for the enemies. 
That picture should, should not be missed. And the writer of Hebrews is making the point, Jesus fulfills Psalm 110. He's the king and he's the priest and he's already ruling right now. And he will continue to rule until all his enemies are brought under his feet. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is on the throne of the universe. That's why his name is trampled in the dust in our society. When people drop a hammer on their toe, they don't say, Oh, Buddha. You noticed? You know what name they use. The name of the most hallowed name in the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, the enemy of our souls wants that name to be ridiculed, to be trampled in the dust, to be treated like a cuss word. Because it is the most honored name in heaven and one day will be on earth. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that that name, Jesus Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. He's already ruling and he will continue to rule until his enemies are brought under his feet. He's on the throne and he's never going to abdicate. John Calvin once said this, how does he rule? His answer, the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. Genesis 49, I can't help but think of that, and uh, prophecy regarding Judah, and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah according to the flesh. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What does that mean? He'll always be king nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience shall be the obedience of the peoples. It, it's, it's fathomless. So, we need to look at the text and realize Jesus is reigning until something happens, until every one of the enemies is brought under his feet. We need to ask, who are these enemies? Well, there's a view out there that basically says that as time goes on, as time marches on, Jesus will, through his church, take over society. He'll bring down political systems, whether they be communist or of another sort. He will rule before he returns, and that's what we're waiting for. I have sympathy for, for that view, but I don't believe this particular verse takes us in that direction for the simple reason of context. As we look at verse 13, here's the message for today. Verse 13 is followed by verse 14. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> for. And the word for is a linking word. It's a word that tells us what is now coming is the result of what has already been said. There's a link between verse 13 and 14. So, verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, there's a lot in this. We're going to hopefully unpack it, but don't miss the point. Jesus has done something. He has perfected, that's past tense, who? Those who are being sanctified. Do you see that in the passage here? He has, not he will, or he's trying to, he has. There are various views of the atonement that tells us that Jesus is trying to do a whole bunch of things. 
The Bible says he has done a certain thing. He has perfected for all time, forever, a people. That's fathomless. Jesus on the cross was able to say, it's finished, not half finished, or I've done most of it, now it's over to you. He said it's finished, and he has finished his work, and by his finished work, what has he done? He's a, he's, he has, let me say it slowly, he has perfected a people. That might be controversial, but that's just your Bible. I don't think it's controversial in heaven. They all believe this. By that single offering, the Lord Jesus Christ perfected a people. He went to the cross for a people just as he was born for a people. He came into this world to save sinners. The angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Did he? Yes, he did. He lived for them, fulfilling the law for them that they could not keep for themselves. He was the only one on planet earth able to say, I have loved God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, and my neighbor as myself. He never had to say sorry. He was the sinless one, the unblemished one, the Lamb of God who was slain for us. The perfect Lamb of God. And as he went to the cross, he had a people in mind. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He has a people. They're his. He lives for them. He dies for them. And right now he's interceding for them. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you see the point? By the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ perfected a people. Forever. Who are those people? We're told, those who are being sanctified. Hmm. So I believe that what we have in view is something, hold on to your seats, dramatic, profound. If we grasp this, if we really grasp this, we'll never by default drift into a works-based salvation. We'll grasp this and forever and ever and ever and ever rejoice in the grace of God alone. He's done it. He's perfected a people. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Now, if you look at the text again, it says the people he has perfected are being sanctified. That's in the continuing present tense. Now, you guys are smart people. I believe you can follow this, because I can, and a lot of you are smarter than me. So here we go. The sacrifice is complete, but the process of sanctification is progressive. The sacrifice is perfect. He has perfected a people, and the outworking of that perfect finished work may take a little time. Hurry up, we're waiting. <laughs> this is a theme that was started back in Hebrews 8. Let's go there for a moment. I love a good sermon when it stops midway through and says, Now, have you got the point? That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point, verse 1. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. In other words, wake up, wake up, this is the message. We have such a high priest who is seated where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
and minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So starting in chapter 8, verse 1, right through to chapter 10, verse 18, there's one theme in view. And we're reading the end of it. Verses 11 through 14 tell us, there's one priest, one offering, and it's mission accomplished. The old Levitical system wasn't able to remove sin. It had many priests. It had many sacrifices. And every one of the priests are still standing. Christ, in contrast, and that's the point, has removed sin. This one priest, by one sacrifice, was able to say, now I can sit down. It's done. F.F. F. Bruce once said this, a seated priest, a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. The Lord Jesus is not offering sacrifices in heaven. He's seated because his work is done. Yet he's not idle. He's seated on the throne interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, present tense. What's he doing now? He always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? Those who draw near. It's the people of God. So, his intercession... His prayer is based on his finished work. The devil comes and accuses you. You did this, you did that. You thought this, you said this, you did this. And rather than saying, no, I didn't, no, admit it. I'm a sinner, I've committed great sin. But I have someone who took my place and bore the punishment for my sin. His name is the Lord Jesus. He's the Savior and he saves me from my sin. I own my sin, but I also own my Savior and he's a Savior who saves. Amen. Oh, you don't know how badly I've sinned. Oh, you don't know how great is his sacrifice for sin. Do you get the point? The main point is this. Do you get the point? One priest, one sacrifice, now seated. Can we say that out loud together? One priest, one sacrifice, now seated. Once again, one priest, one sacrifice, now seated. What is Christ doing now? Waiting. For what? All his enemies to be made its footstool. Which enemies? Political regimes? I don't think so. Is all the world to be Christian before his return to earth? I don't think so. Based on that little word for... Because that word at 4 in verse 14 of Hebrews 10 is a linking word, a word of explanation. Okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. I believe you'll follow me. Here we go. The enemies, he is making a footstool for his feet in triumph, are those he saves by his sweet, redeeming love. In the Muslim world, you conquer by conquest, by the sword, obey, or die. Jesus rules by the winning of human hearts. And he uses a sword, but it's not a physical one. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. 
I believe verse 14 is an explanation of verse 13. And it's that word for that indicates this. Here's the logic. Jesus has perfected a people for himself. He's perfected them forever. The New American Standard reads, for all time. And these are the enemies made his footstool. Enemies he's conquered and subdued by means of his once and for all sacrifice. There it is. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Keep your place in Hebrews. I believe we'll be back. Hebrews is to the right. Romans to the left. Romans chapter 5. Look with me in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How many here qualify? All right. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that. Not while we're on our way in sanctification. While we're ungodly, while we're still sinners. We are not trying to get to him. We're running from him. We're his enemies. If God had a castle, we would bomb the castle. That's what's in our hearts. We don't like God on the throne. We'll make up a different God and we'll serve him. I like that kind of God, but we don't love the God of the Bible until God removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that beats to know him. And once he does that, He's made his enemies his friends. For scarcely, verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, shaking our fists at the God who made us, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, this speaks of the death of Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 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 oh, let your ears prick up, enemies. We were enemies. You and I were born into this world enemies of God. We may have been elect, but we were born into this world elect to come to Christ. But before we came to Christ, we were enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? Tell me, tell me what we did. What did we do? Nothing. Nothing. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Hallelujah. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, we've been born into this world as the enemies of God, dead in trespasses and sins. And this goes along with what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Why has Jesus Christ not come back? Where's the promise of his returning? This Christ is not willing that any, any of his elect in context, any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We are the beloved, we are the ones he died for, and Christ will not come until the last enemy is brought under his feet. And in celebration of the victory of Christ, say, I love being your subject now. And Jesus says, rise to your feet. 
my son, my daughter, and share in all the benefits of the kingdom. It's a beautiful thought. God reconciled the people who at that time were his enemies. We sing a song called Jesus, Thank You. One of the words in that song are really striking. Your enemies, you've made your friends. Your enemy, you made your friend. I want to ask you this, are you perfect? Depends how you are what you think about that. Have you been perfected? Well, here's what I want to say. Jesus has perfected a people, perfect tense for all time. He's brought to completion all for whom the sacrifice was made. Now, here's how we understand this. This is not speaking of you and I in sanctification. I once met someone after a church service who told me it was uh, the lady. She was already perfect. I looked at the husband. He just rolled his eyes. <laughs> it's the type of thing I used to have anger issues. Now I simply have righteous indignation. No. None of us have arrived, but if we're a Christian, we've left. I haven't arrived, but I've left. There should be something in you if you're a true Christian, if you've been perfected by the work of Christ, you are now on your way in sanctification. You can say there's been a change. Something's happened. I was this, I'm now this. Does sin still factor in your life? Sadly, yes. You haven't arrived, but you've left. Praise the Lord. So he's not talking about perfect in the way of sanctification so that we never sin again. But here's what I want to say. One day that'll be true of you. One day you'll, in glory, not have a body that desires sin, a flesh nature that desires sin, and you'll be easy to live with. But until that day, we have a few struggles. Don't Just keep your head focused. Don't... Don't, don't nudge people around you. One day that will happen in glorification. We'll not be able to sin. Because there's nothing in us there that wants it. That's coming. Let me quote my friend Brian Borgman. Through the offering of Jesus, the very goal of the law, the covenant, the sacrifices have all been brought to fulfillment in the new covenant. You have been perfected means you have been brought into a permanent, direct, personal covenant relationship with God based on the finished work of Christ, which means your sins have been forgiven and you have access to God. End of quote. I want to say this, the law couldn't do that for you, but what God demanded in the law, Christ provided he kept the law. Now notice this. He gave the law. He's the ultimate writer of the law. And he came and kept the law and then died for lawbreakers. So, by his offering once and for all, he's perfected a people who are on their way in sanctification. That's what verse 14 tells us. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And day after day, 
enemies become friends and he's waiting to all the enemies and made a footstool for his feet. It's beautiful. Turn to Philippians, if you would, chapter 2. Actually, chapter 3. You'd be blessed if you're in chapter 2, but I want to focus in chapter 3. Paul (coughs) is informing us of what God has done for him and for everyone else who are in Jesus. And in verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision, the true Jew, who worship by the Spirit of God. This is Philippians 3, verse 3 who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence. How much is that? None. In the flesh. And then he recites for us what would be if you got a piece of paper and you know how you do this. You put on one side of the sheet your assets and on the other side your liabilities. In financial terms, okay, I've got a house. You can talk about whether that's an asset or a liability. I've got a car. Is that a, does it go on this side or does it go on that side? Am I still paying for it? All of those kind of things. Well, Paul in this chapter is listing his assets. And as we walk through the test, uh, the, excuse me, the text, we see seven of them. First of all, he says, uh, verse For though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, you talk about assets, bring your assets, show me your sheet, my sheet's better. I have more. Why? One, circumcised on the eighth day. Two, of the people of Israel. Three, of the tribe of Benjamin. Four, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Five, as to the law, a Pharisee. Six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Seven, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right. He thinks they're assets. Something happens, though. But, thank God for the buts in the Bible. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I realized I put them in the asset column, And in seeing Christ and his righteousness, I realize they're all liabilities if they don't bring me to Christ. If they don't give me what Christ gives me in righteousness, they're not assets at all. They're liabilities. But whatever gain I had, whatever assets I had, I count them as liabilities, loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything he'd ever done religiously, he now seeing Christ and his righteousness, puts in the liability section on the page. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's actually a weak translation. Writers didn't have the courage to translate it directly because it's a word for manure. Skubalon is the Greek word, and it describes all religious activity outside of the gospel. Skubalon. We are prone to skubalon. Rubbish. Some translation read dung. They got more to the point. So I count what I thought were assets as 
liabilities, and more than that, scubalon. Dung. In order that may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from law-keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. He lists all of his assets, counts them as dung for the sake of Christ. All his assets are now viewed as liability. They are dung, they are scubalon, they are manure, that he may gain Christ and his righteousness because his righteousness is perfect. Go to verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. What's the this? I don't know Christ as I'm going to know him. Verse 10. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I haven't arrived at all that. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. But I thought Jesus perfected a people. Yes, so we're now understanding what he's talking about, what the Bible says as a whole. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. I haven't arrived, but I've left. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice, he's righteous through faith in Christ plus nothing. But... There's still a work in him to do. But none of the things that happen in him in sanctification give him what Christ does by simply believing on him. Brothers, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I haven't arrived, but I've left. I'm on my way. I'm on my way in sanctification. And if you as a Christian say, I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence that you're on your way, it should cause you to ask, am I truly his? Because what God does when he justifies someone by faith is he also regenerates that person and gives them a new desire. That's the battle, isn't it, between now and death. At death, we see Christ, our struggle with sin is over, but now we have a struggle. It's the Romans 7 concept. I want to do good and I don't do it. I don't want to do evil and I do it. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I'm always struggling, Pastor. Well, praise God there's a struggle. There wasn't a struggle when you didn't have new birth. Now you want to do the right thing. Yes, you fail at times, and there's provision made. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But praise God there's a struggle. Praise God you're sorry you sin. Not, hey, I love my sin. No, the true Christian does not lay down in sin and make it a bed. You can fall into it, but you quickly get up. 
And that's why all of the pieces of the Bible can be put together and you can have a true understanding of salvation because the Hebrew writers will, writer will one day say this as we continue on. I say one day because we'll get to it one day. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Why? Because it means the process of sanctification hasn't begun. But if you can see a measure, a measure of sanctification, God's at work, and he's taking you all the way to Christ-likeness. And you'll be like him. If there's no measure of holiness, it should cause us to ask, is this someone who's not a true Christian? That's Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Back to Hebrews. Look at verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected forever, for all time, those who are being sanctified. He's done something for a people. He's perfected them. And the result is they're on their way in sanctification. Verse 14 and verse 11 are parallel verses. Look at verse 11. And every, excuse me, verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By the death of Jesus once, we, the people of God, have been set apart for God. We've been perfected according to him. And it's exactly as we read in Romans 8, do you remember the golden chain of redemption? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's so a done deal that as far as God's concerned, they have been glorified by the death of Christ. The death of Christ secured the perfect righteousness of Christ and the glorification to come. No one falls through the cracks. He's perfected a people who are on their way in sanctification. He has perfected a people who are in the process of perfection. But I want to end with this. <clears throat> the ongoing process of perfection is never the basis upon which you've been perfected. The, onward, <clears throat> the ongoing work of sanctification in us is the result of his perfect work for us on the cross. He's perfected a people. He's able to say, I've perfected them, Father, while he's on the cross. It's finished. I've done it. Hear this. Someone needs to hear this. Your justification is never up for renegotiation. It's never based on your sanctification. We never separate justification. That's God declaring us right in his sight. We never separate that from sanctification because the truly justified person will be different. But we make a distinction. Your sanctification is never the basis of your justification, ever. 
The moment you believe, we are justified by faith, apart from works. Romans 5.1, therefore having been, past tense, justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A reformer once said, we're justified by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. That faith will also manifest itself in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. Are you grasping it? If you grasp it, <clears throat> we'll not be like so many in church history who failed to grasp what Christ did. No wonder the writer of Hebrews repeats this. No wonder. We've got to get it. And if we get it, we'll be amazed forever at the atoning, finished, perfect work of the perfect Savior. And that's what heaven will be about. And guess what? It's what now is about when you get it. When you get it. Worthy is the Lamb. Not worthy is the Lamb plus the saints, plus Mary, plus my merit, plus, plus, plus. It's Christ alone. He gets all the glory. He's the Lamb on the throne. And right at this moment, He's in the place of all authority interceding for His people so that you and I get there. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the King. We thank You for the priest prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus, who by his one sacrifice has perfected a people forever who are on their way in sanctification. Write that truth indelibly on our hearts. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.